The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Ajit Vicario, the founder and CEO of Flare Education. I met Ajit a few years back when he was just creating Flare Education, which has an incredible mission to tackle generational poverty and build in the high school setting education and internships and corporate experience for young people to build those skills for their development in the future and build networks. It's an incredible organization that's growing fast. His 10-year vision is to have 10,000 kids per year being served. And he's already built it up in Boston, is taking it to other cities. Amazing person and an amazing mission. You'll enjoy this episode. And next up on the podcast, we have a couple we want to mention. We have a senior partner, a colleague of mine here at Keystone, Shauna Simchek, who is the senior partner of our Accelerator Leadership Development Program. And we also have another episode with Aaron Lovering, the CHRO of Edelman Financial Engines. And now our discussion with Ajit Vicaria. Ajit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's really great to be here. It was great meeting you. I think it was about three years ago. You were just going into business school and just starting to get flair education off the ground. I remember that was in my phase of doing a lot of LinkedIn cold messaging. So you probably got this random <laughs> LinkedIn cold message from this guy named Ajit. And you're like, what's this guy up to? Seems to have a, seems to have an idea. And it's been great to see how over the last three years, Dave, we've been able to work together and just create impact together. You've been a part of that. So that's something I, I definitely want to thank you for. You've made a credible impact, Ajit. And we want to talk about Flare and the impact it's had on different communities and organizations and some advice that you might have for HR leaders that are putting in co-ops and different things like that. So we cover a lot of those things. But, but first, we want to hear from you a little bit about an early life moment. As you look back on it now, it informs who you've become as a person, as a professional. A lot of it, you know, comes down to my parents. As you know, now make academics a huge focus of my life, having been to post-secondary, I mean, getting an MBA, now teaching kids. But in middle school, I really wasn't a great student. I was a solid B student, um, sometimes getting those Cs. And there was a moment in pre-algebra in seventh grade when I remember I just flunked a test. I remember my dad looked at it. He told me, he's like, gee, if you look at the bigger picture, all that matters is that one day you're going to have a job that hopefully you like, and chances are you're not going to have to do algebra at that job if this is not what you want to do. At the same time, he also said, but don't rule it out, right? Just keep exploring. My parents have always been a key figure in that self-exploration type exercise I've been through, and I think a lot of the experiences I've had to date up until this point have been because of that mindset around always exploring, always finding new things, always being curious. Those were things that my parents always instilled in me. But I, I still remember that moment. And when I, about a year ago, was finding you know, that initial point of success with Flair, I actually told my dad about that moment. I said, hey, you know, that's, that's a key life lesson that I try to replicate with a lot of the students I work with. He's like, yeah, but you'll never do it as well. 
whatever. My dad's kind of cheeky. So <laughs> that's, that's his personality. Yeah. And here you are educating kids to a similar age. Right? Exactly. Well, I know about Flair, but a lot of our audience doesn't. Can you talk about what your vision was and what Flair does today in yeah. the world? We are focused on providing high school students with these really high quality work-based learning experiences. And many times these students are coming from generationally poor backgrounds and we're helping prepare them for work-based learning experiences in the best of best companies, you know, tech companies, biotech companies, financial services companies, nonprofits, government agencies. But really it comes down to that exposure. What we see in the world is that a lot of students growing up generationally poor or without access to opportunity don't get to see a lot of things. They don't get to see a lot of things in their community. They don't get to see a lot of things because their parents are oftentimes working multiple, you know, nine to five jobs or multiple shifts. They don't get to see a lot of things at their schools because oftentimes the schools are under-resourced and the resources that are being put in are just to build capacity as opposed to providing all the different types of programs that people maybe in more affluent backgrounds get access to. And so from our perspective, we really believe that if you can provide students with a window into all the opportunities that exist in the world, it's maybe a fundamentally like American dream type idea that those opportunities allow students to really delve into their own interests, explore their own goals, and come up with their own sense of what they want to do with their life. A lot of this is not just a vision. It's also based on some of the academic research we've looked at. We always talk about this idea of capacity to aspire, which basically means that to really be able to seek out your goals, you have to build capacity internally, the confidence in your skills, the confidence in your networking abilities, the confidence in your relationships, the confidence to be able to go into a room and pitch yourself even something very simple that a lot of us have learned how to do, but for many high school students just is not something intuitive. You have to build that capacity internally. And once you build that capacity, then those goals become so much more achievable. The goals that many of our students have been hungry for and the opportunities they've been hungry for, they become more realistic. And so when you can showcase to students that that confidence builds over many, many years, then ultimately what you expect to see is down the road, these students have very, very goal-oriented mindsets. And those goal-oriented mindsets will take them through a life of building generational wealth, specifically getting into employment at really great companies, earning money through that employment, and then knowing how to use that money to achieve generational wealth, which for our students is their end goal, right? Most of our students in our program talk about how, you know, 10 years down the road, they want to have a home, they want to buy a car, they want to do the things that their parents and their communities haven't been able to showcase to them all the time. That's really what Flair Education is about. And obviously, as you know, our programming connects to that, the 36 months we spend with students in their high school years, the student stipends, every kid earns $20 an hour in the program. You know, the employer engagement piece where we help employers, like you said, really understand how do you build effective co-ops and build effective internships and how do you include young learners in your workforce and understand the value there, which is more than just doing good for the world, but really understanding what is at the core of what a young learner needs and how do I build an apprenticeship first or a mentorship first culture, one that allows all of my employees to thrive, right? The exposure to the employers you feel is like one of the key things, right? Meeting yeah, exposure business to careers, people, people. Exposure yeah. to, exactly. And, right. and oftentimes it's just exposure to experience. Some of the most transformative programs I've seen in, in the education space have been able to provide students with a window, like I said, on the world. And in our case, the window we provide is a window into the best paying jobs, the best types of companies, the best types of careers and careers that are growing and need talent, right? And so for students, it's this wonderful synergy that once they understand that they belong in these types of careers, guess what? They're set up for success. 
they're coming out of high school with three internships, with 36 months of training, with great credentials, you know, oftentimes going into post-secondary, already having a vision of what they want to do. Once they can unlock that capacity to aspire, so to speak, the world is their oyster. This is your incredible mission. It's great what you've created. Can you describe a little bit more of how it works, who the students are, how you partner with organizations, what the training and educational components look like? I know about one of them because you invite yeah. people in the business community to come in and speak on Saturdays. I know you mentioned this. You pay the students to come in for that education on Saturdays. That's part yeah. of the program. And they get paid on the internships as well. Obviously, on the student-facing side, it's a 10th, 11th, and 12th grader experience. So the idea behind those 36 months is you can make a big change in 12 months, you can make a transformative change in 36. And those age groups, 16 to 18, are really influential ages for students. A lot of them have defined goals and they have defined interests, but they haven't yet connected that to what their vision of themselves in the future is going to be. By 18, a lot of students are coming out with that vision for themselves. And so you have this really great opportunity from our perspective to help shape that vision. And the way we do that is, to your point, we have a school year portion of the program, and then we have a summer portion. During the school year, there are workforce training sessions on Saturdays. There are field trips that we host. There are networking events where we invite professionals to come in. As you mentioned, we always love to bring in guest speakers during the Saturdays and during the networking events. And that's always an opportunity we have to bring in professionals who come from the communities that students come from, as well as those who don't, right, who have shared empathy in other ways. Ajit, you've had several of our podcast guests come in, actually. I know yes, at least three or four yeah, of them. I yeah, know. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. I'll say this. When we work in the summer months with employers to build these internships, many of our students are getting exposure to a lot of business functions, HR, marketing, sales, IT. HR specifically is a great place for students to get exposure to because there's so many people-oriented things that are happening in that space now. You know, it's really being redefined as a people-oriented function. For our students, it's about building that capacity to aspire. It's about building their skills. We call them transferable skills, other people call them soft skills, but really they're the kind of skills that everyone needs to be really versed in before they enter a job. You know, how to communicate with adults, how to pitch yourself, how to work well in teams. We have a project-based learning infrastructure in our curriculum behind all of this that advocates for certain learning standards that our students really need to prioritize in their development. So obviously it's building skills. It's also, like you said, building relationships. That's one of the key aspects of this that's so important is a student needs to be able to walk into a space and feel like they can talk to people. Some of our students come into our program already being extroverted and kind of goofy, and they're the ones who don't need so much training. Other students are very introverted, very shy. Some have social anxiety. And when you put them in a room of people who maybe don't look like them or come from the same communities they come from, there's a bit of training that we need to help them and the tools we need to give them to understand what, how do you even make small talk? I mean, that's such a basic one, but those simple three questions you could ask, you know, that really helps us students a lot. And then, of course, we talked about, you know, a little bit the payment model. I think something special happening with Flair is it's not financial literacy in abstract. It's financial literacy in practice. So every student, when they enter day one in 10th grade, signed up on our payroll system, direct deposited stipends into their bank account while they're earning money through the program, $20 an hour for every hour, whether it's during the school year where it's stipended by us, or during the summer where it's paid by the employer, we can double down on how are you spending that money? What is your budget for that money? What are you doing with it? Because in these communities that we work in, it's an example of space in Roxbury, right across the road is a check cashing place. Right down the street are a bunch of places that take cash app, right? And, and you look at our student population coming into our program, 
90% of them have Cash App, you know, that Robinhood gamification of wealth. It's great that technology has advanced that in certain ways, but oftentimes it can teach the wrong practices to a lot of our students. So for us in that space, we're really oftentimes undoing a little bit of what they've learned already and helping them comprehend things like budgets and investing. And even some very advanced principles around building wealth, like the role of passive income, the role of asset building. Sometimes people think, hey, why would a high school student need to know that? But for our students, by the time they're 12th grade, many of them are already talking about, yeah, I want to buy a property and, and get a rental property and a, you know, a triplex by the time I'm 26. I mean, it, it's powerful stuff that you get to see when you put financial literacy in practice in a way that, again, isn't just a lesson plan but it's very practical because they're earning $100 in a week and they have to think about what they're going to do. Right. It's holistic, the learning. That's right. And that's the school year portion. And then obviously, as you mentioned, the summer portion is mainly working with employers, what we call activating employer partnerships, helping employers think about how they can include students in really high quality ways during the summer. Yeah. Like how do you engage employers? Is it called an internship? Is that the way you refer to it? Yeah, we do. We call them summer internships. I know there's a lot of different terms going around the space now, but one of the things that's really important for us is redefining the way internships can and should be done. And I think for high school students, it makes a lot of sense. And I'll even extend this to college students or even post-grad students and how it works. But essentially what we see is in the best in class internship requirements, the companies we work in, and I'll, I'll quote a few, you know, I've seen this at Clark's, I've seen this at PTC, I've seen this at a few other companies which really subscribe to this ideology. Internships are about culture, right? It's really more than just retention. It's more than acquisition. It's about a culture building experience. People get excited to have interns. They get excited for the new class. They get excited to work with young learners. But from our perspective, where you really need to tie that together is what is the value proposition, not just for an employer. I think employers get it. What's the value proposition for a supervisor? A supervisor is taking a significant amount of time out of their day Right. And there's no direct results after the internship. Obviously, there's a sense of satisfaction. There has to be an end result, something you can build on in future years. And so what we do is we kind of deploy what we call our inclusive management mentorship program. It's a toolkit, essentially, that we provide to supervisors. It looks like templates to help them understand how they can build internships well. It looks like you know project ideas. It looks like a sample work plan. It all the way towards the internship looks like some training sessions focused on mentorship and apprenticeship. And then during the internship assessment toolkit, the idea being that if you can help supervisors really find value in the experience in and of themselves, specifically in the reverse mentorship and in the idea that they're building their management skills and taking on this new professional development opportunity, then what we envision is that this becomes a staple of every internship program. After the internship, the HR teams looking or the people teams looking at this assessment toolkit, they're looking at how the internship did, they're viewing the supervisors that did really well as future leaders in their company. That's essentially the change that we envision at every employer. And so when we sign up with employers, we're very honest and open about, you know, the commitment that has to be made to, to build this type of infrastructure with us, whether it's for the high school program, but even more generally through every internship program, but we think it can be incredibly powerful. Again, I used the example of Clark's. Their internship program is so well designed. Every little piece is so well thought through. They have all this programming, all these events that they hold. Our high school interns, day one, felt included in the culture. They felt included in the space. It meant that their supervisors who were signing up for this also felt that they were getting something out of it. I noticed from the way the CEO and the way the chief HR officer talked about their supervisors like, gee, these are the best of the best, right? <laughs> That's why they're doing this work. And so 
there's such a synergy around the way in which supervisors prioritize the work, the way in which the executives of the company prioritize the internships, and the way in which the students themselves feel welcomed in the space that it creates this wonderful win-win for the employer and the student. I'll go to the other extent too, where we've talked to companies where it's all about talent acquisition. It's all about, hey, we have a metric, which is the number of student interns that come back, and that's all we care about, and that's what we're optimizing for. And what we found is time and time again, those employers struggle to get those interns back. And guess what? The Clarks of the world, every single one of the students who works, whether it's a college intern or a high school intern, they want to come back. You know, this is such a benefit to a lot of the supervisors we find because they get to experience things almost what our teachers experience every day in the school system of 10, 15 years down the road. What's the workforce going to look like? these key trends that are emerging in terms of communication styles, in terms of just social knowledge and ways in which you build relationships that are fundamentally different. This is one of the things we're really passionate about because again, it connects our mission of the students to our mission for how we change the world. Because the more of these employers and the partnerships we can activate, the more our students fundamentally benefit because they can then come to spaces that are well-equipped for their success. 20 years down the road, what you're gonna end up seeing is because of the labor shortages we're seeing today, because of the ongoing labor shortages that I'm sure everyone in the HR community is versed in, right? These are the employers that are going to be attracting talent. They're the employers that have figured out how to build a robust pipeline, one that doesn't just feel like doing good for the world or one that doesn't even just feel like one project here, one project there, but one that feels an all-encompassing experience for everyone at their company, that this is, this is the way it's done. Yeah, but I would imagine, too, that the employers that partner with you and have robust internship programs like this are gaining some skills about being more inclusive and being better leaders to young people that come from under-resourced communities. I'm sure they're developing some capacity themselves. That's what I really love to talk about as well, Dave, is because this is obviously something that's very nascent from our programming. Right now, we're focused on activating the partnership. But the next step for us is building capacity with the employers. And I think a lot of employers that we've talked to have mentioned that as something they either have been investing in or want to invest in more. Because to your point, when we see a partnership emerge, what we typically find is that two to three supervisors, so to speak, boil to the top in terms of interest, right? They're the ones who are standing out among their junior and mid-manager class as the people who want to take this on. Those supervisors learn a lot from the experience with us because, frankly, when you're working with high school students who have a lot less technical skills than college students, as well as a fundamentally different level of maturity, you as a manager have to be that much better, right? You have to learn skills in a more robust way and you have to be so much more focused on apprenticeship and mentorship than you might have to be with, with a college student who's already pre-vetted and already has some basis of technical skills and maturity, right? And so the learnings those managers take away is so transformative. Now, the question is, how does that really disseminate into the rest of the organization? And that's something that I think we've been experimenting with, with a Clarks or with a Schneider Electric or the other employer partners that we work with, because when you can see that dissemination real time, then you can start to see the real impacts of this work, not just on a supervisor or a team, but within an entire organization. And that's where, from our perspective, this becomes incredibly scalable. And that's also where some of our you know, fundraising partners who are like Walton Family Foundation who are very interested in this work, that is where they're seeing a huge focus, is because to, to create the next generation of inclusive environments, it takes activating partnerships in a way that disseminates this knowledge throughout an organization and allows those organizations to really quote unquote win. 
right, to outcompete the organizations that are stuck in the old way. Yeah, and you have dozens of corporate partners already, right, that have invested in Flair. And you started it in Boston here, but I think your goal is to take it to other cities. Is that true? Correct. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So we had 28 employers this summer, 50 students. 10-year vision is 10,000 kids per year. And, wow. you know, it's it's starting now, I'll say. For yeah. example, you know, we're in very early talks. I can't name the districts, but very, very early talks with a very large city to deploy a very large, robust program that mirrors a lot of what we're doing at Flair. We think we can really change a lot of the ways districts, especially large institutions like cities, states, approach this. We think we can change a lot of the way it's done for the better. Some early wins from both the student side and from an employer side. Are there any stories that kind of bubble up for you? The first year we did this, we were 10 students. Uh, It was just me going into the summer of 2022. That was our pilot year. And uh, we had a student with us at the time. She was an 11th grader. She was interested in STEM. She didn't know what it was or what that meant. We sent her off to a biotech company where she had an amazing experience, a company called Ronta Bio which has been a key partner of ours. She had a phenomenal experience and she actually had a mentor at that company, Melanie, who was their chief quality officer who got her interested in quality work. Start over again in the next year, she's at her school, she's interested in biotech, she's doing biotech advanced studies, even at RCC. She goes off to Blueprint Medicines this last summer and just kills it working with their corporate affairs team. She comes out of that summer internship just a couple of weeks ago, now is going off to RCC, doing a you know, two-year biotechnician apprenticeship program there. She's also probably going to be involved in the Mass Bio uh, Large Apprenticeship Biodiversity Program that's launching this coming year. And so she's well on her way, right? She is defined what we look to define, which is a student by the age of 18 who is super goal-oriented, who has decided, I want to do this. She might change her mind. She might go into tech next or she might do engineering, whatever it is. That motion she's gone through has helped equip her with that confidence she needs to go and do whatever she wants. And I expect to see with our help that in five years, she will be a successful professional in the biotech or some sort of STEM industry. That for us is the goal. I mean, we want to see that replicated, you know, 10,000 X, because I think it's very powerful to see how those high school internships and that experience in high school could shape the outcome. On the employer side, you know, I'll use PGC as an example. Two years now, we've worked with the Onshape engineering team which is a technical team. We've worked in QA. Now, recently, we worked in R&D strategy. For two years now, we've seen students come in, do a project that's been well-defined, and then come out and give a public presentation to the entire Onshape engineering group at PTC, which is the largest product group at at PTC, the largest engineering group. And for two years now, we've seen the impact of those presentations and how they have ripple effects upon the entire staff. It's become a staple of that group. The first year I got five or six messages. This last year I got many more of people being like, man, I wish I had this in high school. And I can see what's happening with these students real time. Every year that impact is felt, not just the goodwill, but the general ability for an engineering group to take on that responsibility and to shape students' outcomes in this way, like I said, can feed back on so many cultural benefits to that group from a diversity perspective, from a mentorship perspective, apprenticeship, early career learnings, and even, you know, with PTC more broadly, you know, how do we take this 10x, not just in industry, but in PTC? No tech company, frankly, is doing high school internships this way. I mean, this could be a case study that in five to six years, we're putting in front of the White House and saying, if PTC, a company of 6,000 is doing it, why is Microsoft, a company of, you know, hundreds of thousands, not 
even taking this on in the same substantive way. Not to say Microsoft isn't doing everything they can be doing, but yeah. it's just, it, it's a template, it's a blueprint of what could be done nationally. I was wondering too, Ajit, what you're hearing from the families and the communities where the students come from. Kids are excited. They want to do the program. We, we don't have capacity to fill all the need. You know, last year, the waiting list was three to one. We basically had to create a model where it's nomination based so that we can tell the schools we want 10. But if we opened it up to the schools, there'd be 50 plus from every one of our eight school partners that would want to do wow. this, right? It's just such a need from the students. To your point on the families, the feedback we've gotten is that, it, again, it just is such a powerful experience for a student. We had a student last year who, you know, in the thick of one of the COVID waves was using their earnings to buy cleaning supplies, right, for their family. A family that does not have money to buy cleaning supplies oftentimes needs that money for food, too. And these types of experiences are, are transformative because generally retail and other sorts of service sector jobs are great for building skills, but oftentimes they're not sustainable long-term solutions for many of these students, right? They, they are not what they're trained or prepared to do. They want to aspire to the kind of jobs that allow them to build wealth in different ways. And this opportunity for the families, oftentimes they see it and they say, the kid's earning money like they would with, a, with another job. They're not just investing in their education, but they're also getting ready. That's something that all the families get and they right. subscribe to. And you know this, the power of that space we now have. We're located on Dudley and Warren. We have a you know, 3,000 square foot space. That's our new home. Being in the heart of that community has undergone so much change, right? We talk about mass caste and we talk about poverty and we talk about you know drug abuse and we talk about all these challenges. I mean, this community, Roxbury and Dorchester, which is you know where most of our students come from, they're experiencing head on. And there's so much synergy between seeing that in a community, but also building a high quality space where these internships can be supported because it, it shows that in every community across the country, no matter what the challenges are, if business can come in and build a sustainable long-term solution to economic development, then you can actually start to move the needle on things like poverty reduction. So I get really, frankly, ambitious about the impact of this work because I think one of my favorite social justice leaders, MLK, one of his last speeches was about poverty reduction and about workforce development and workforce opportunities. And I think workforce development for youth is one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways you can actually start to make advances in terms of you know, broadly speaking, poverty reduction. Great work you're doing, Ajit. You mentioned the PTC event that we had. We had a Keystone event for our clients and Lisa Riley, the chief people officer hosted. And you were on a panel along with Evan Pierce from the Boston Celtics and Robin LeBlanc from Citizens Bank. And one of the focus areas you had is some of the learnings you've had in working directly with your dozens of employer partners on what are some of the best practices with internships and co-ops? The biggest learning by far is pre-work goes a long, long way. And especially with supervisors, you know, what we've seen across the board, if there's not a work plan for an intern, there is no internship. It's gonna be a student sitting down and not knowing what to do two hours out of the day. The worst thing about that is it creates a perception that the intern is gonna fail. And it creates a perception of other people and how they view the intern. There's a lot of damage you can do for a student if you include them in an environment, give them a job where they are set up to fail and where they know that other people think they're failing. And it's not because of them at all. It's because you, you didn't scope it out beforehand. The idea that, okay, yeah, we'll just take on five interns and figure it out, even for a lean startup, I just think doesn't work. Things like work plan generation, 
a bit of diversity, equity, inclusion training, a bit of cultural sensitivity training, a bit of just how to apprentice. One of the things that we see all the time is some supervisors think about interns as temps. Interns aren't temps. You hire a temp with a very specific skill set. A temp is someone you can get on the ground running, hopefully in a couple of days. It's someone that's an alternative to a full-time hire. An intern isn't like that. An intern is an investment to help better them and to better the company, right? And of course, you're gonna get some real work done, but to get that real work done, you have to invest. And so as an example, what we see best in classes, we see some supervisors take two hours out of that first day with the intern to explain how do things work? How do the systems work? How do you get logged in? That might seem like a lot, but also remember that's two hours spent in the first day that saves four hours spent in the next five weeks, not just by that supervisor, but by everyone else who has to explain this over and over to the student who's confused. So this is the number one thing I'd say. And, and you know, for anyone interested, we have an entire what we call welcome packet that every one of our employers gets, which is the set of templates, the set of toolkits and deliverables that we you know, recommend supervisors work on with us to prepare for that. I would say the litmus test for us is with any internship, you know, for a supervisor, they need to spend about five hours, at least five thoughtful hours to really think about what an intern will do, depending on the time frame for four to six week internship. Maybe if it's a 10 week, 12 week, they need to spend a little bit more time. A second thing I'll just say, it's aligning the organization about the value proposition, right? So there are different value propositions for internships. There is talent acquisition, which is a real value proposition that can be the driving force behind why you do something. There can be culture, right? Our people expect this. They expect people to come in. They expect to better the world. It can be DEI, right? We expect to build a funnel and a pipeline of really diverse individuals that we want to include in our space. Everyone needs to be on the same page about what is the goal and how are we going to deliver on that goal? So if it's talent acquisition and there's a specific target, how are we going to get there? We've seen this done well at uh, Schneider Electric. Their internship program with us was mentorship, right? They have an entire mentorship program that they're deploying globally, and this fits under that remit, right? And so for them- You need to build mentorship skills. Is that why? To they- build mentorship skills and to be mentors, to be civically engaged in communities in that it's way. A cultural, that, that, it's a cultural- It's a cultural culture, initiative. Right. Yeah, it's right. a key initiative of their foundation. It's a key initiative of their global ESG policy, right? It's the right. S in their ESG policy is basically all towards mentorship. And then of course, the other foundational work they do. And so for them, that's how the internship program with us manifests. That's how the internship program manifests for all their college interns and postgrad interns. It's all about building a mentorship relationship between the supervisor and the student. And so that's where they invest the vast majority of their time. But that's alignment from the top all the way to the bottom, right? That's really what they're measuring is they look to see those relationships forming and that building the same type of talent pipeline that everyone looks to see. A PTC is different, right? A PTC for us, when we work with PTC, it is about that impact. It is connected to the DEI, it's connected to the culture initiatives, and it's connected to a lot of the foundation initiatives, which are not necessarily all about mentorship. It's a lot about what impact are we making on local communities. And so that's an alignment from the top around what their internship program for high school students means. We have seen examples of internship programs where the supervisor comes at it from a perspective of, I want the kids to get really great exposure and I want them to be meaningful participants in this program. I want them to get a lot out of it. But the leadership is thinking all about how is this going to benefit, frankly, our talent acquisition pipeline. The dissimilarity there, the problem there, is that once the internship wraps up, the supervisor was saying, hey, the kids benefited a lot. The leaders are asking them, yeah, but are they coming back? 
the supervisor never prioritized that, right? That wasn't something on the supervisor's remit that wasn't on their docket. And so yeah. there was no alignment. And so now what happens next year? The program doesn't continue. And oh, by the way, that supervisor spent all this time developing that student, taking time out of their day, which is definitely because it wasn't appreciated affecting their performance. And therefore, because they never were recognized professional development wise, they're left on an island and they feel probably dissatisfied with that experience. Again, internships can be incredibly powerful tools. But what I always say is they're strong, strong commitments. If you want to just do good for the community in a lightweight way, you can hold a career fair. You can do a field trip. There are easier ways to do things than internships. <laughs> if you're going to commit to internships, which I think are very powerful, there are more benefits on the other side than probably any other one of these talent acquisition strategies in our view. And there is yeah. one thing we want to talk about by bringing Megan Mandino. Megan is the producer of our podcast and also always ask the NERA question. You've mentioned how important it is for mentors to be able to communicate with their interns and create an inclusive environment. And we were wondering how can HR specifically prepare or train these mentors to best facilitate the internship relationship and pitch the need to train and develop these future mentors to leadership before an internship begins so that they don't create these negative experiences? Great question. Internships are leadership and development opportunities for supervisors. I think it has to take that frame of reference. When supervisors are not treated as, wow, you are taking on this huge initiative. We really appreciate that. We are investing time and energy and resources into you being successful. They're left on an island. And guess what then supervisors learn over the years? They don't want to do this again. That is the pitch, right, to an executive, that to do this well, you got to do it comprehensively. And for supervisors, we have to prioritize the supervisors that are young leaders. I am identifying the five supervisors that I want to reach out to first because I want to make sure they are equipped for success. And by the way, those are the supervisors who already you've seen that demonstrated from who are going to be great. And those are the supervisors you want to put those learning development resources in. It's a learning first culture where everyone is striving to be then that supervisor who gets that invested L&D opportunity on their you know, PD work kit. The executives then are looking at that on a frequent basis and saying, okay, this person is ready for the next level. When promotions come, when compensation decisions come, that's being assessed. And so I think that fundamentally is the pitch. And then in terms of the practical implementation, the good news is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are so many wonderful training providers, wonderful DEI providers. There are people who specialize in this, who are literally DEI practitioners at companies that we all know, right, who specialize on this. I think depending on your intern, if they're high school or college or postgrad, you're going to gear it differently, right? If they're high school kids, you're going to do a little bit more on the apprenticeship mentorship side. If they're college kids, you're going to do a lot probably on college life and goal setting and what does college mean, right? And you know, helping the supervisors empathize and build that relationship. There are different kind of curriculum packets you can generate depending on the age group and depending on where your students, they're coming from an HBCU, obviously you want to do a lot more on making sure your environment is inclusive because you don't want someone to feel like they're token. That's the worst case scenario, frankly, is tokenism. So th there's different ways in which you can think about packaging the curriculum. But I think to your point, it comes down to a really effective pitch. It comes down to broader buy-in, resources, money, time, right? That's critical. It comes down to someone staffed on this from the HR side who can spend that time, who has the budget to bring in training providers, whether it's internal or external, 
right, and has the budget to build that curriculum and make sure it's robust enough to engage with supervisors. If this is coming from the top and it's a well-functioning L&D initiative, guess what? Every supervisor is going to want to sign up because they're like, oh, another accolade that can boost my compensation, get me promoted faster. Then you get your pick of the litter and, and you're going to pick the supervisors who are already future leaders. Ajit, question for you. If you could give advice to your 25-year-old self, of course, that's only four years ago for you. So uh, <laughs> I'll still ask it. At 29 and 25, you're still in that you're in that age group where a lot of things have changed. And, you know, at 25, I was a product manager in a company called Samsara, which is now a public tech company. I was entirely focused on my career and my life and what I wanted to do with the time I had. And I think what I realize now is that I'm very ambitious about what I want to do. When I talk to the kids about the world as your own oyster, I subscribe to the idea as well. I think that what's most important for me now is to create truly lasting change. It comes down to imprinting on a lot of people a deep sense of impact and a deep sense of fulfillment. The advice I'd give to my 25-year-old self is don't wait till you're financially secure. Don't wait till you kids are in college. Don't wait till you're 50 and thinking about the third leg of your career. Do it now. Create the impact you hope to see in the world because if you do that, even if you invest in it, but if you do it successfully, if you take that bet, you're going to find that you're in your late 20s, early 30s, and you're feeling more sense of satisfaction out of the work that you ever did. You're able to work harder. You're able to do more and you're able to see a better vision of your own success. I see a lot of people, my friends who are waiting And I think as a result, they're getting burned out. And I think the burnout happens, especially for people who put themselves in very high pressure, high performing situations. The burnout happens when you're doing the same thing over and over and you're beating your head against the wall because you're trying to get the next promotion and trying to do that next thing. But you're not thinking about the impact you want to have versus when you do think about the impact and you center on that impact and you go after it and you have even just a little modicum of success. It's that light that drives you further. Right. If you could go to dinner with anyone in the world, who would it be? Martin Luther King, probably. Someone who Mm -hmm. built a very strong social movement. That's the change I aspire to see. And so Mm -hmm. I would say probably Martin Luther King. That's great. And your favorite performing artist or maybe the last concert or show you went to? So I did go to a festival called Electric Zoo, Izu here in New York, which if anyone on the podcast frequents, EDM type festivals, they'll know it was a complete disaster. Um, but I did get to see a set by one of my favorite DJs called Griffin. I will say all time favorite though is Taylor Swift. My wife really loves Taylor Swift. And the reason it was my favorite was just, I've never been able to go to a concert with such a sense of energy. I was in SoFi Stadium in LA, which is one of the nicest stadiums I've ever been to. And the stadium was shaking. I was like, oh my God, it's gonna collapse. And I've never ever seen in our generation, in my generation, an artist create a culture or a social group like that. Well, Ajit, it was great having you on our podcast, and we're so happy about the work you're doing and want to support you in any way we can. So well, let's get this message out to even more employers on this podcast. I appreciate it, Dave. And we're a nonprofit. We do this for the bettering of the world. And so for anyone interested in building better internship programs, regardless of whether they are interested in our program, please do reach out. We're happy to share as many materials and information about how we've done it, what we've seen be successful. Thank you, Ajit.
Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.